0: We say good morning, church, again. Good morning. It's good to be here. And we haven't started a new year yet, but we're close, aren't we? And of course, as that comes on, we uh, realize it's always a great time to be seeing what the Lord has done in the past year and uh, realizing that he's getting ready to do something in the next year. And so uh, he puts himself on display all the time, doesn't he? And uh, sometimes we just need to recall that. That's what's good about the uh, end of the year and a new year. God has a grace that is on display that is immense, that is tremendous. Now, in the book of Titus, we've gotten a glimpse of what the church is to be biblically and how it is to function and what we've seen are characteristics of what a healthy church is and uh, we saw elders, for instance what their characteristics what their qualities are to be leading in the church multiple elders so that was definitely a highlight also we saw everybody else in the church the uh, older men the older women the younger women And the younger men. And that covers it all. That covers everybody. We all are functioning in the church and we all have a part to do. And the whole church is to be lights of the world as Christ shines in us. We are witnesses. We are representatives of the light of the world. And we recognize that each person in the body of Christ has his light to shine. And God puts on an amazing display of grace constantly through His church. Even though sometimes we may not see it all, it's it's Him. And the church is a beautiful thing because it's His creation. And, and He is making it. And He's building it. And it will come to perfection. In the meantime, we're here to show Him. Because... He puts on display His amazing grace as we, of course, sang that song. You see it on your bulletin this morning. By saving wretched sinners like us. Yes, that's right. Wretched. It's still in some of the old hymn books. (laughs) We were wretched. We were out of this wicked world. And He sets us apart from sin. And He changes us to live godly lives so that we can represent Him by being zealous in doing good works, to live godly, purified lives, displaying the very power of Christ that transformed our lives, transformed us from wretches to lights, lights in the world. You know what? Apart from worshiping God, which is the chief end of man, right? And that is the reason we're here. But there's another reason that we exist. Because if we're just here to glorify God, why wouldn't He just take us on up and glorify Him to the extreme? (laughs) Now, we would all, I think we would all just like that. As soon as you become saved, zoom, zap, and you go right into the eternal state. Wouldn't that be great? But He's put us here for a purpose, and that's good too. We are here not only to glorify God, but in glorifying God, we are to, and I used this word a lot last week because we have some of those people here, the heralds. And we are to herald forth the praises of God to a lost world. We're to put that forth. We exist here to herald forth the gospel because there's people out there that hear it. Otherwise, why would we need to be here? And of course, he does train us through other things too, through sufferings and such. But I, I think our biggest job here is to uh, uh, evangelize. And if we're not here evangelizing and preaching the gospel, then I don't think we're a church. If <laughs> we're not doing that, and we're not preaching the gospel and, and uh, doing that. You know, if you look in, in uh, the, the New Testament, you look in the Book of Acts. That's what you see. You see the gospel being preached, being preached to the lost. And so all you have to look is to look at the very origins of the church and you see how the gospel is proclaimed. That's the church. And uh, so the church is to display God's saving power so that other sinners would be attracted to Christ because of what they see in us. And you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want them to look at me because that will really I don't, know, that'll mess people up. No, we want to make... Christ look attractive. Now, I know that's, that's a hard thing to do. But remember, you, if you're a Christian, have been transformed. I mean transformed, changed. Are being changed. And so something happened. Now, again, the, the focus of the tension is not here on the church as we talk about it here. Although that's important. That's a great doctrine. But the focus is on Christ. Because Christ is the head of the church. So, we always want to keep that in mind as we go through God's Word. This is all about Christ. It's all about the glory of God here, right? But we know that God shows off His glory by saving people. And all throughout Scripture and all throughout Titus and in our text that we're dealing with today is about a Savior. You know, and this is a great time of the year to be talking about the Savior, right? Always is. But God is concerned with saving His people. We know that. And so what we're going to look at in our text is salvation past and salvation in the time that we live in now, which is a time that we are challenged as far as battles are concerned uh, and, and doing good deeds by the grace of God. And then the future grace. I think of future grace, I think of John Piper. I think this is his last day at Bethlehem Church up in Minneapolis. And uh, he will be venturing on to something else. It's kind of sad to hear that that's the last time that he's going to be pastoring there, uh, at least for now, from what I understand. And uh, so uh, he was going to finish out this year. And so I have borrowed a lot of thoughts. And so that word, future grace, was one of the first books that I ever read by him. And that's what this is dealing with as it talks about looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our um, great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Uh, So we're looking for that blessed hope by grace. So we were saved by grace. We live by grace every day as we challenge um, all the things of the world that come up against us and as they challenge us and we have the future grace, that blessed hope. So at the heart of this all is the cross of Christ. So we're going to be talking about the gospel. We're going to be talking about grace. We're going to be talking about how we line up in that great plan that God has. So in this passage, we're going to look at the gospel of grace and how it works in our past, in our present, and in the future. Let's let the glory of God shine through our lives. Let's stand and let's read this text. It's in chapter 2 and starting at verse 11. This is God's saving grace on display. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this morning as we get the opportunity and the great privilege to worship You, for that's what life is about. And Lord, as we proclaim the Gospel this morning, and as we proclaim it always, we pray that Your very meaning that You have in this text for each one of us today will be impressed upon our hearts. And uh, Lord, just uh, use this pot this vessel, this vessel of clay, pot of clay, that as it comes out of my mouth, that the very power of Your Word would just jump out at us and see the wonderful glory of the grace the great gospel that You have in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, we uh, jump into uh, chapter 2, verse 11 here, and uh, of course... um, The first part says salvation to all peoples brings salvation to all men. At the heart of the good news is the doctrine of grace. Did you understand that? At the heart of the good news is the doctrine of grace. I can't think of a a better word. Grace. Matter of fact, what's the name of our church? Ah, Grace Community Church. You think we're emphasizing that a little too much, don't you think? You can't. You cannot emphasize grace enough. At the heart of the good news is the doctrine of grace. And grace just permeates all of the Bible. It permeates all of Paul's thinking and his writing. And if you were to go through a concordance and look up the word grace that was mentioned by Paul, you might run out of fingers because he mentions it several times. All the time it's in his thinking. Uh, One scholar by the name of Edmund Hebert said this, Paul could not think of Christian truth and conduct apart from God's grace. The truth, that's doctrine, and conduct, and it's all by grace. So when the Bible tells us to do something, it's not something out of our own willpower that we're going to do it, but it's by His grace that we're able to do that. And uh, anyway, we know that grace is unmerited favor. Free, it's a gift, it's something that is not earned. right? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift of God, faith, grace, the whole thing. Um, Donald Guthrie wrote this. The expression, the grace of God, may fairly be said to be the key word of Paul's theology. I think I would agree. He goes on to say he cannot think of Christ uh, I cannot think of Christian salvation apart from the grace of God. So key word, grace. And grace runs the exact opposite of what is in the world, uh, the world teaches that th- everything is on a merit system, and uh, I know in the, as far as the state is concerned, they have uh, the merit system, which is is a good thing i mean it 's based upon what you can do, and we definitely believe in that I mean and you should earn a living, you should work for money. And uh, to do those things, that's what it should be. Awards should be gotten because they were achieved and people worked for them. But God's system of salvation is on the other end. That's why it's so unnatural for us to understand grace. We're still learning grace, aren't we? And every week we should be thinking, every day we should be thinking about that grace because it means more and more to us all the time. All the world religions operate on a merit system. How much you know, how much you do, and that is how you get into nirvana or whatever it is. Even in the Christian realm, and I put that loosely, but you can think of the Roman Catholic Church, which is a works righteousness system. It combines the grace of Christ with the works that you do. And I don't think that they would differ from me on that. They may not agree with the way that I put that, but that's really what it is. The Greek Orthodox Church, same way. And there are particular churches in just even what would be called a Protestant church that may have some other things that you have to do, whether it be through a a baptism or um, some kind of thing that you have to have. Now, see, that goes counter against the grace that is in the Bible. But on the other hand, you have the pendulum that swings over way on the other side, and it's people who abuse grace. Hey, you're saved by grace. Hey, I can do anything that I want. Uh, it's true you can do anything you want. But you want to please God. And you don't want to uh, live a life that would not be representative of Christ. And so they live a life of licentiousness. And they carry on and live a sloppy way of life. And uh, matter of fact, sometimes it blurs the lines and you wonder, are they even Christians? Right? So there are two different kinds of views of grace that are wrong but there's really the, the true grace the unmerited so as we talk about that unmerited favor for the grace of God has appeared I like this I like the word here and it's related to epiphany you ever heard of epiphany? Uh, epiphania is the Greek word oh you learned a Greek word today you can say that You can if you can say epiphany you can say the Greek word it, it means a manifestation it means He's he's already been here. And you said he. I thought it's grace. Yeah, well, we're going to show that grace is a personification. Grace appeared. The grace of God has manifested itself into a person. He has been shown to us. It's the personification or Christ becoming a man. He appeared. That's already happened. Look in Titus three four, and you'll see another word that has appeared. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind what? Appeared. Paul uses the word again. So, what has appeared? Well, in chapter 2, grace appeared. And in chapter 3, verse 4, kindness appeared and love appeared. Those are... Personifications, words that became life, Jesus is grace. Jesus is love. Jesus is kindness. It's not just qualities, it is Him. Grace is Him. He appeared. Isn't that amazing? In John 1 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, right? As of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. And truth, full of grace. Completely full. Grace. We live by grace. Our gospel is a gospel of grace. Grace is a personification or manifestation of Jesus. Now we'll go back to the Titus two, and it says, For the grace of God has appeared. Aren't you thankful that he has appeared? grace has appeared bringing salvation to all men salvation means to deliver we were delivered from what? sin death hell Satan bondage salvation is dealing with being delivered delivers people from the eternal penalty of sin we have a penalty that is riding over our head before we know Christ right? and it's eternal damnation eternal penalty and we've been saved from that Uh, never forget that so he or grace appeared that offers salvation to all men now we have something here that can be seemingly problematic it's one of those verses that we must explain Because if we took this at face value, at least what it looks like, what it first appears, without knowing any part of the Bible, if if you'd ever, if you'd read this and it's the first time, you go, "For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men." Now somebody could take that literally and say, "Well, it's not to women, but it's it's just to men." (laughs) So women are not saved. Now we know that can't be true. Or to me, all of mankind, and in that sense there is a general sense but in this sense we're saying everybody who's ever been born uh, every man, woman, and child no matter who they are salvation to all everybody but that's a universal salvation and I don't think there's much need for me to go to all the texts that shows the Bible doesn't say and never says that everybody who's ever been born will ultimately be in heaven We, we know that right? and I think a 2 Thessalonians 1.9, just one of, I mean, just hundreds that we could go to, but real quickly in 1.9 it says, talking about dealing out retributions, retribution of those who don't know God, in verse 8, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. See, there's the penalty. They're the ones who are not delivered. Away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His power. That's, that's terrible. I mean, that's eternal destruction, it says, and a penalty of that. So, if all men, every one, like a lot of people, like the Universalists would say, um, then they have troubles with just that verse, but many other verses, right? And Jesus spoke about hell uh, more than anybody. So, we know it doesn't mean that and so we have to use other text Um, I think one thing it means and I think it really probably means this for the most part but there are other ones that we can look at I think are interesting to to look at all peoples, nations, tribes, tongues general, mankind out of of this country, from this country from those kind of things there one thing is certain that all people such as Gentiles will be saved not only Jews will be saved. People representing many people groups—that's that's a good uh, key word term now, isn't it? People groups. Okay, are you in a unit people group. <laughs> the people group that I'm familiar with are the people who know Christ. That's my favorite people group. Uh, then there are other ones. Uh, there's a thought of all types of sinners. Salvation to all types of sinners. What kind of sinners? Well, the ones who are the elite people, religious people, certain people that turn out to be believers in Christ, or the people who are poor and destitute, um, slaves. We could go back into chapter 2 and it it talks about uh, verse 9 and 10, it talks about slaves, uh, even talks about young men and young women, older women, older men, all sorts of different people. That's another way of looking at. All the ones whom the world despises. The ones, And then there's another one where I think it's really fascinating, and we'll go into this a little bit, because as we look at other verses that say something like this, even a little bit more harder or concise, and then we'll look at the the answer to that. But at, first of all, we know there is a sense of a temporal salvation. Have you ever heard of that? We're thinking of eternal salvation. But this is another thought. I'm not trying to confuse this. But uh, I, I think it's, it's interesting to look at. And I think there is some truth to this. People who never are believers, never are saved eternally, can be, in a sense, saved in a temporal way. From the standpoint of the sinner, looking at not the view from God's view, but the sinner's viewpoint, atonement, we know, extends to the virtue of faith, doesn't it? And we know that our cry is to everybody. Our call is to everybody, regardless of whether we think they're going to be saved or not. We don't know. God knows. So, from the standpoint of the sinner, it's either faith in Christ or unbelief. And uh, there are two different uh, places they will spend eternity. So, you will die in your sins because you do not believe in Me, as Christ says. All are called to repent, right? So, we know about that. It's a matter of faith. So, we think of some of the times we run into words like uh, whosoever world, all. And, and John 1.29, John the Baptist points, he's looking at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And somebody can look at that seat and say, Hey, He really does mean world. That means everybody that lives in the world. What doesn't really say that? It says the world. But the way that it would read in the vernacular, people would say, okay, well that that means everybody's ever been born. And then we go to John 3.14. Jesus is describing what the new birth is to Nicodemus. and Then He gives an illustration out of the Old Testament. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. Whoever, there's your whosoever, right? Whosoever believes in Him, who are the whosoever's, the ones who believe. Who are the? We'll get to that in a moment. For God, so everybody knows this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's the world again. You can say, well, see, he's going to save the world. Then we look at John six, and John six has a lot of verses dealing with election and then predestination, the sovereignty of God and such, but we're going to look at one that seems to be a little different in John six, fifty one. It's not different. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He came from heaven to the world. There are men in this world. There are going to be people he's going to save or reconcile as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. And it seems if you read these verses... If you didn't, if you eliminated all the other verses that we have, you'd say, well, see, everybody's going to be saved, or, this means that he died for the, everybody that's ever been born. It sure looks like that, doesn't it? Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he, was, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him do no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But there again, the word of reconciliation that goes to the world. He reconciles the world to Himself. If He reconciled every person, it means they've been reconciled. If He bought and paid for everybody's sin, they're all in. Right? Christ paid for the debt. If the debt's paid, it doesn't need to be paid anymore. And if all the sins of the world have been taken away, like John the Baptist said, if people took the word world to be every person, then they're paid for too. That's what these texts look like. They are troublesome. Well, we're going to see some more that stand out even more. Are you ready? Boy, it seems like it shoots election all over the place now. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And you've probably encountered these verses. And are these verses right? Well, absolutely. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the te- for all a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Okay. He's a mediator. That means he stands in between God and man. He mediates. He reconciles. He makes things right between him and, and God's people. But Christ was a ransom for who? It says they're all. He, he was a ransom for all. Who, who is all, right? Well, First John chapter 2, verse 2. And this even gets a little more difficult. You will get these verses brought to you somewhere along the line. Talking about Christ, He Himself is the propitiation. He satisfies God the Father. His justice. He's the propitiation for our sins. Now look at this. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Not only for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Is it possible he's talking about not only to us people that are here, but all out through every place, right? Anyway, first Timothy chapter four, verse ten. What we're actually doing is looking at verses that challenge limited atonement. And you say, Dennis, are you playing the devil's advocate here today? (laughs) For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, you ever had any trouble with that one? He has. He's a savior of all men, especially of believers. So there are believers and unbelievers, and it seems like he's a savior for all of them. There again, we can keep looking at, the, uh, thinking of the all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues. We can think of all types of sinners and that kind of thing. I think that really plays in to that. Um, but another thought that helps too is in. Some way, unregenerate people actually have an enjoyment in this life. God could have, when sin happened, is wiped out all of mankind. Every generation, no generation would have ever been here, and so there is a sense. That he's a savior of all men, in another sense, somewhat related, he's especially the savior of all believers for eternity. There's a savior. What does this mean? I'm still confused. Are you guys still confused? Well, R.L. Davney wrote a book called Five Points of Calvinism, and he has a thought on this. I think that's very helpful. I'll quote. Christ's sacrifice has certainly purchased for the whole human race a merciful postponement of the doom incurred by our sins, including all the temporal blessings of our earthly life, all the gospel restraints on human depravity and the sincere offer of heaven to everyone. For But for Christ, man's doom would have followed instantly after his sin, as that of the fallen angels did. That's a very articulate paragraph, isn't it? That's pretty understandable. That in a sense, he saves all men, or everybody who's ever been born, from being destroyed immediately. And he could, as soon as they're born, he could take them out. What he's saying is this, that the Lord in His death did in fact... In one sense, purchase for the whole human race a kind of salvation, a, a, a deliverance. Remember, salvation here it can mean and actually means deliverance. Uh, what was it? Well, the fact that they're not consumed instantaneously in itself upon the first iniquity, sin that they performed, is is amazing. That He doesn't just Jump on that with judgment. All the temporal blessings of the Gospel. You know, in 1 Corinthians 7 it talks about marriage. It talks about an unbeliever being married to a believer. And it talks about a woman who's a believer and the, and the, the husband is the, is the unbeliever. And in that text it says that they are sanctified. In some sense, they are sanctified. It's not that they're, they're believers because they're unbelievers. That doesn't make any sense, right? It's not that they're justified by faith, but they're sanctified. They're set apart because God is blessing that uh, wife and the children. Everybody that's in that family, there's a Christian there representing Jesus Christ. So they're set apart in that. And, and remember, there is a common grace. God reigns on the just and the unjust. Negatively, positively, right? But there's a lot of positive things. There's a common grace. There's com- compassion upon mankind in general that He has. That if it weren't for the cross, we all would have been obliterated. So, but for some reason, He keeps some um, for Himself and others He keeps to live here for a time. There is a sincere offer of heaven that goes to all. There are people out there that hear the Gospel, but they still refuse it. And some will refuse it all the way to their death. Somehow, mankind was different than the angels. He could have done to mankind what He did to them. And just chose who He wanted out of mankind. But in, in, And believe me, there are the, the angels weren't destroyed. I'm not saying they were put to death or anything like that. The, the bad angels... Uh, He uses them for uh, a much higher purpose. (laughs) He's in control of that situation. But they were sinned and and they're damned at that split second. And so it could have been with, with mankind. Think of the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. There you have a sacrifice that is done for the whole nation of Israel. Now, is everybody in the whole nation of Israel saved? No, absolutely not. You know, you look through the Old Testament, you'll find out that uh, not at all. And uh, Paul will talk about that in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll turn there in a moment. But at, at the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, that particular day, it actually stood for the nation. And that was a picture of what Christ would do on the cross. So in one sense, they would get their sins covered. There was an atonement made. So it's covered until the time of Christ. But if they don't believe and, and look to that Messiah and trust in Him, if they don't live by faith, they're going to hell just like everybody else will in the New Testament age. But there was a sense of a national salvation there, or a deliverance that lasted uh, for, that, for that year. Uh, look in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. So there was this sacrifice made, although ultimately the ones who are really true believers, that one is for them. But it's still representing for, for that nation. 1 Corinthians 10.5 says this. And he's talking about all were mo- uh, baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea, all of that spiritual food and spiritual drink. They were all part of that. Then in verse 5, nevertheless, With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. You look in Hebrews chapter 3, you see that most of those were unbelievers. And they were called evil, paneros. No Christian is ever considered to be evil. Paneros. They were not converted. They were laid low, even though they partook. Of the rock of Christ. They they ate and drank. They were baptized into Moses. You see what we're getting at? But they were not really the chosen ones. So every unbeliever really ought to look at his life and say, I've seen a small evidence of saving grace. I've seen a small evidence. I breathe. I live, I've heard unbelievers even thank God because somehow He has taken care of them as He moved them from one house that only had a, 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 a small amount of space, and they got to be a big family, and somehow that house was going to be bought. And a highway came through and so they transpl- were transplanted into a much bigger house and they were paid for all that money to do that and they thanked God because of that. But then uh, on, the other, on the other hand, on the other side of the tongue, they're cursing God and saying things. Do you see? Isn't that something that they're still blessed and they even realize it? Unbelievers can say, yeah, I know God did, did, did all that. You know, they can, they can laugh, they can see, they can hear, there is beauty. And they say, Yeah, God created. I know that God is a saving God. Well, a little bit more about this temporal deliverance. Can you imagine people cursing God, and at the same time, God doesn't take them out? Romans 2 4. Why wouldn't he, right? Well, Romans 2 4 kind of gives an explanation to this. Or do you think lightly? He's talking about the judgment of God. Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? And he's talking to people who are going to be judged. He says, do you think lightly of kindness, of the riches of the kindness, and tolerance? He tolerates unbelievers who spurn Him. And patience. The patience of God. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. While we're talking about grace today, we're also talking about judgment, aren't we? Because we know that that's what we were delivered from. Coming judgment. But look at this. He has kindness and tolerance and patience. And he's crying for repentance. He commands men everywhere, all sorts of people and everybody to repent, doesn't he? In Acts, he says that. So isn't that interesting? Kindness, tolerance, patience. That's a temporal forbearance, a mercy here that he has for them. It's a temporal deliverance. He saves not only... He saves the world, and but not only that, especially the believers. This is one way that that could be interpreted. I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I think it is fascinating that even the ones that He hasn't elected, He's still patient with. And He calls for us to give out the gospel. Now, this is interesting. We've seen all, and world, and all that. We've spent a lot of time on this, but I hope it will help in, in explaining to people what this, this all and world and everything can be. Uh, Now, it, it turns to the many. Go to Isaiah 53, which is one of the great chapters in all the Bible, recognized to be a messianic chapter. 700 years before Christ, explaining Him. And then look in 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Now you get... um His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his debt because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. We know this is Christ, right? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. reading down into verse uh, 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Now, Isaiah says the many. doesn't say all, but he does say the many. Well, look in John 10, verse 11. Let's see how this kind of uh, graduates. I'll, t- I'll tell you what. Can you keep your finger there for a moment? Do you remember Mark 10.45? I'll, I'll say a, a New Testament one here. This is, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for Many. Now, this time it says many here in the New Testament. Or in Hebrews 9.28 it says the many. Well, who are the many? Well, the answer right now is is called the elect. Uh, The the elect ones are the ones who will believe. The ones will believe because they were chosen before the foundation of the world to believe. They were given that uh, grace, that mercy, that grants them saving grace and saving faith. So they can believe. They are the elect. So the many are those who believe, we know that. It's sufficient for the whole world. If, if it would have meant for every whole world, meaning every man, woman, and child. It was sufficient, but efficient or effective for only God's elect. And and that's what we're getting into. Specific people. That's what we're getting into. John 10, verse 11, now gets into that much more. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down for the sheep. Um, Move to verse 15. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep, I'm going to die for the sheep. Well, who does Jesus die for? Every man, woman, and child. Verse 26, But you do not believe, as He talks to the religious people, because you are not of My sheep. So there are people who... Are his sheep, and then there are people who are not his sheep. I think he's very well clarified that to them. I think they got very upset at this time. By the way, you get into verse thirty-one. They got so upset. What did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. (laughs) He just laid out limited atonement. He laid down election. He says, "I'm going to die for my sheep. Not you're not my sheep." But I have sheep that I will. And the, my sheep know me. And I know them. And we get it explained even further in John 17. We're in the, the, the Gospel of John. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus praying. John 17:9. This is limited atonement or particular redemption, folks. And this is the point where most people will stumble. They can buy all the other points of Calvinism, but when they get to this one, they have a lot of difficulty because of those other verses that we read. But now we get into the stickler that challenges those verses, and they're not really challenging. They meet with each other and they tell who the all is, the world is, the whosoevers are. The whosoevers are are the sheep. Whosoevers are are the left, the ones who believe, the ones who have chosen for the foundation of the world so that they would believe when time came. (laughs) John 17, beautiful. Great chapter, verse 9, Jesus praying. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Oh, now it's narrowed down to the sheep and now it's to the ones who've been given from the Father to the Son. Verse 19 and 20. For their sakes I sanctify Myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in Me through their word. That's us. Now it's narrowed down to us. We believe in Him because He gave us the repentance and the faith. We are the sheep. We are the many that He will bring to redemption. Now, He intercedes... He intercedes to the Father for us right there. It's not for the world. He's talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about being with Him in glory. There is a somewhat of a deliverance of people to be able to have a common grace here, to have, be compassion and an invitation to repent. There is the general call and there is the specific call. I think the people have to answer these verses if they're going to bring those other verses up, because we can explain those verses, but how do they explain these verses? And then we can go to all the election verses and predestination verses. We've gone through that many times, but this is the Illuminated Atonement. Ephesians 5.25, one more and we'll move on. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And look at this and gave Himself up for her. Christ gave Himself up for the bride. Unbelievers were never included in to be the bride. He died for the elect, and the elect only. The specific people that He had chosen before we were ever here. And he dies for them. Now the salvation for all men, when we look at that, and then I think with all those explanations, we have uh, many, I think, to choose from. And then we have to say, okay, well now we see that that eternal salvation is for all those who believe. And possibly Titus could be speaking, just to put it out there, bringing salvation to all men. But I think the all men extends to different people. All Spread out all over the world, Jews and Gentiles. But I still think of that salvation, or that there's a, a, a temporal blessings, a temporal deliverance for unbelievers. And they have a lot of blessings and privileges in this life that God has given. That's only made possible because Christ died there in that, in that sense, in that very limited sense there. Now, ready? Move on. There's past salvation. You're part of that. You've trusted in Him. We now go into present salvation. And He he talks about instruction here. We now go to the present time. It's the here and the now. We're not only delivered from the penalty of sin, and that's what verse 11 is about. In verse 12, we are delivered from the power of sin in the present day. Do you get that? the power of sin has been broken you can say well it's still here I still sin yeah absolutely that's right you do but the power of it has been broken no longer are you under the bondage of sin where you are just sinning all the time that's all you really are a sinner but now your nature has been changed now you're not on that side of the street, you're on the other side, you do not have to sin. The power has been broken. So the penalty of sin is done. The power of sin in our daily lives has been broken. No longer are we slaves. Amen? Grace changes our lives. And now He gets to negative and then positive. And these are going to flow real quick. You ready? We're on a jet tour now. He instructs us, and by the word the, uh, way, the word there is peaduo, uh, which means to instruct, uh, uh, to take a kid to school. It's a child training. It's a disciplining. It's a correcting. And so what's happening to us right now in our lives is that God is teaching us, instructing us. He's correcting us. He's disciplining us. And He uses all sorts of different things to do that. With. And so in this process of sanctification, that's what this verse is, in this process, we're moving more and more away from that sinful life and more and more to God. Right? It's called that. A process of sanctification. Deny. He's teaching us to deny. And to deny means to reject or renounce. Does anybody here like to sin? I don't think you like to sin. And as a matter of fact, if somebody knew that you were sinning and you were saying, hey, I really enjoy doing that though. I really enjoy sinning. I don't think anybody would really want to say that. Now, we know that we would love to be delivered in a sense that we never sin again. Well, that's coming up in the next verse. In the meantime, we are still sinning here, but we are to reject those things. Grace changes us. Grace doesn't just save us it continues to change us. And we don't change by human willpower. It's by the grace of God. He delivers us from the passions and the habits. Uh, Deny ungodliness. We are to deny that, reject it, make a decisive break with the old life. Don't let that um, ungodliness rule on our lives now. And, And the Word of God, it teaches us, doesn't it? And the Spirit of God teaches us, doesn't it? And by the grace of God, the Word of God and the Spirit of God combined together, and somehow some way, he has rooted out a lot of things in our lives that was representing and, and really showing what we once were. He has taken many of those out. He's still working on us, isn't he? right? He's still doing it. but ungodliness means it uh, doesn't reverence God doesn't care about the things of God, matter of fact, ignores God. Do Christians ignore God? Shouldn't, right? Uh, and then worldly desires, ungodliness, worldly desires, you can think of 1 John 2.15, love not the world and all the things in it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of... Uh, what is it? Flesh, the, the, the lust... Uh, what, what is it? What is it? <laughs> I forgot now. The boastful pride of life. So, now we're going to have to turn there because I have a brain cramp, as they call it. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. By the way, the world's passing away. It's dying. And it's lust. Soon that will die. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Amen? Amen. Wow, great. So he's instructing us to not love the world. Those things in it, we're beginning to see what a difference the, the world is from the way that the instructions of God are. Matter of fact, it's all turned upside down. It almost seems in the political realm, everything that they believe in is the opposite of what you believe in. Have you noticed? Some of the laws they're passing is exactly opposite of what we know to be true. Things that used to stand for things that would represent God's truth now are being overturned hurriedly, very quickly. But what's it talking about? The human system. The godless human system. The things that we used to do. We need to be reprogrammed. That's what the Word of God does. That's why we meet in Bible studies, in worship, to be reprogrammed because you are being programmed out there by television, by internet, all the things that the world is offering Coming right to your head, and it's trying to program you. You see things that come up, you go, Nope, no way. Nope, not clicking on that. Things just pop up, things there, no, I'm not going that way, right? You're rejecting those things. You're being programmed by the Word of God. And so, as we're being reprogrammed, we realize that, you know what? I used to be selfish, still am, but I need to get rid of that even more and more. Oh, the pride. Boy, that's pretty worldly, isn't it? How about greed? Lust? Status? Power? All of those things. It's coming right at us. And He says, reject it. Renounce it. That's the things of the world. God's grace is far sweeter than anything the world can ever offer, folks. Don't believe that lie out there. Then He gives the positive. He says, deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And then the positive. When you take something else, what do you have to do? You have to put something in to fill it up. Well, as the Word of God and the Spirit of God comes to us as He fills us, here's what we do: live sensibly. And have you seen that word before in Titus? We have seen it. You can check it out with me if you like. But in chapter one, verse eight; chapter two, verse two; chapter two, verse four; chapter two, verse five; chapter two, verse six; and now in chapter two, verse twelve. And the word is sensibly, sensible, um, Sophronos. save brains self-controlled that's the idea self-control God's standard of conduct fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control being sensible right uprightness or righteously that's the divine standard and it's really about behaving right toward others when, it, when you see the word righteously here, it's living a righteous life and treating others and then showing righteousness toward other people. And then holiness is towards God. And godly in the present age. Holiness and devotion to God. It's, it's about our attitude towards God. Seeing Him as a holy God. Praising, adoring, worshiping, loving Him, honoring Him. Do you, do you like those words? That is living a godly life. Just adoring, honoring, worshiping Him in the present age. So that is in this time sense where we're at now. This is how we live our lives. So we're saved in the past, saved in the present, as we're being instructed, and then grace in the future. Here's your future grace. Uh, This is one of my favorite verses. Looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of the glory, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Deliverance from the very presence of sin. Deliverance from the penalty of sin, verse 11. Deliverance from the power of sin right now, as in verse 12. That's what's happening. We're delivered from that power of sin. And then it goes to the aspect of one day the very presence of sin will not even be around us because that is our blessed hope and we will be glorified as Christ is glorified. Boy, you see this all over Scripture and this is the greatest motivation that you can have. This blessed hope. A blessed hope. Is it blessed? Is it blessed to you? We can live on that, alright? We all long for this glorious manifestation of the appearing of the glory of God. It's worth it all, isn't it? Oh my, we've we come to the, the end uh, here today. And there's so much here. Someday, sin will not exist. It will be done. It's dying. The last as we read those desires, the worldly desires of sin? It's going to die. That'll be it. We will never sin again. Everything that we will do will always be right because it will always glorify God. Every word that we say, every thought, every action that we do will always be a glorious thing. The blessed hope. Is this worth it as we live in this life? It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard life. But as we do that, live sensibly, live righteously, live godly, so that it will be attractive to people who are lost. The word appearing there is the arrival, the hope that blesses. It's the same kind of word that we used a while ago. Who is this glory? It's a person again looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory. Did you know Christ is glory? The appearing, that hasn't happened yet. He first came in humility the next time He's coming is in full glory. That Christmas story, that little baby thing, is not coming in that way. He's coming in absolute full glory. The appearing of the glory. The glory of God, our great Savior. The glory in the second coming. And it's pointing to one person. This is a deity verse, folks. The glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus Granville Sharp rule in the Greek. It's a Greek grammar rule and it means this and the way this is set up, it can only mean Christ here. It all means this. In this sense, even though God is glorious, the Father is not returning in the sense that the way that Christ returns. Christ will return here. The glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. He's speaking there. This Greek grammar rule is speaking of Christ. He is the glory here. Although the Father is glorious also. And they're very equal. But what we're really proving here is that Christ is God. Our great God. Our, our God. Our great God. And Savior, Christ Jesus. uh, Who gave Himself... And here we go. I'm just going to read this and this sets us up for the Lord's Supper. Are you ready? Who gave Himself for us. He died for us. Substitutionary. Penal substitutionary atonement. He died. Took on the punishment. For us. He substituted for us. To redeem us. And a slave would know what that meant. It meant that they were bought out of Bondage or out of slavery and set free. That's what redeem means here. He bought us out of bondage and has set us free from what? From every lawless deed. As we live right now, the power of sin has been broken. We've been bought so that we do not want to do those lawless deeds. And to purify for Himself, He's purifying us by His blood. He paid for us with His. Blood, a people for his own possession he owns us he bought us. he didn't buy anybody else. if he did, he made a mistake. He bought and paid for him and all that money that was so he bought us, his sheep, his people, paid for his possession well. For good deeds, zealous for good deeds. that's what we are about here. He bought us so we'd be his possession so that we would have such zeal to do good deeds, so to glorify him, that people would see our works and glorify him. That's what the church is about. That's why we're here on this earth. That's how grace works, folks. It saves us. And then it trains us, teaches us how to be godly in this present age that is evil and that we be zealous for good deeds and as that is happening, we're looking for the blessed hope of the return of the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. That's the outline of our little text. We're finished with that. And this is going to go right into the communion. One reason that we partake of this Lord's Supper is that it reminds us of these precious truths that we just looked at. Before we partake, we examine ourselves, we confess our known sins, and as we think on that great sacrifice that our God and Savior did by giving Himself up for us, it should draw our hearts toward Him in love. Draw our hearts to Him in devotion. Our hearts toward Him in praising Him. It should make us long for His appearing in glory. I don't know what this glory is going to look like, folks, but it is going to be totally mind-blowing Nothing that any man could ever put up on the big screen or with all the lights that he has when we are caught up together with Him forever. Father, we come before You confessing our sins, desiring to live godly, to live righteously, to live holy lives, not in the manner that we once lived, and the way the worldly desires are bringing themselves to us. Help us, by Your grace, to be able to shun all of those things and the things of the flesh, selfishness and pride and greed and lust and everything that's out there. And we know it's by Your grace that You are the one that keep us from being just pigs, wallowing and... In the mud and going back to that. You have something much, much better for us even now and in the future that's even better. And Lord, You've planned that all out. And we give You thanks for that. And we remember that by partaking of something that is material, something that we can see and feel and taste uh, that we know that's uh, something that is representing. What you've done in our lives as you have changed us and brought us into your family. In Son's name we pray. Amen.